the Mind Body Connection podcast. The Body and Mind. With your host, Dr. Phil Parker. Hi, and a very warm welcome from me, your host, Dr. Phil Parker, to this edition of the Mind Body Connection podcast. And today we've got the privilege of talking with Professor Andrea Evers. Uh, who is a phenomenon in research. Uh, she has produced 172 papers, 53 of them since 2018. She's focused particularly on the placebo effect, um, but also looked at a whole range of illnesses, so uh, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, itching, pain, uh, Lyme disease, fibromyalgia, such a range of stuff. And she's also just won the really prestigious Stevin Prize in 2019. Um, in this interview, she talks about her work in placebos and nocebos. So placebos are where you give someone a, a drug or, or some kind of treatment uh, and it doesn't contain anything. Nocebos are when you get a negative response, uh, an unexpected ne- negative response to, to, again, a pretend substance or pretend treatment. Uh, she's also looked at open and closed label placebos so closed label placebos are where you don't tell people you give them something and go this is real uh, and open label are where you give them something and go this isn't this isn't real sort of nothing in it uh, it's a placebo well this is just a suggestion um so she's looked at open and closed label placebos as well as well as specifically looking at the physiological effects what's going on in the body what's actually happening measuring stuff measuring uh, hormones measuring all sorts of cell activity so she's got a wealth of information to share about the mind body connection so here she is Professor Andrea Evers. Welcome, uh, Professor Andrea Evers. It's fabulous to have you on this podcast. Um, I've been looking forward to speaking to you for a while because I know that you'll have lots to contribute on this interesting subject of the mind-body connection. So welcome. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Um, first thing I'd like to start with is, is um, a kind of definition from you, and I've asked this from all my guests, is what for you is the mind-body connection? How would you simply explain it to somebody? What's your definition? Thank you for having me here. It's really an honor to be a part of this interview. Uh, the mind-body connection is, of course, a complex phenomenon. And we are particularly looking at the influence of, for example, psychological factors in, on health and disease. And psychological factors means, in fact, that it is behavior, it's uh, our thoughts, cognitions, and emotions, of course. And the relationship between these factors and physiological factors is what we usually define as a body-mind connection. And this makes it also much more concrete, because then you can really look at the specific stress factor and environmental factors, for example, on the body. But you can also look at the cognition, for example, expectancy that are very important in placebo research, or, for example, the coping behavior. For example, if people, um, uh, when people avoid a specific stressor and whether this might have consequences in the long term. So, in fact, there are several ways how to study the mind-body connection. Um, but in this definition of behavior, emotions, uh, cognitions, it makes it very concrete and much less abstract when you think about mind-body things. As I said earlier, one of the reasons um, doing the podcast is because I had this interesting conversation with someone who said, well, the mind-body connection is nonsense. There's no research 
to support it and I was saying well there is loads of research to support it you know and this guy had a PhD in physics or something uh, and he was like no no there's nothing out there that has any robust evidence and particularly his position was there's nothing that uh, that might okay the mind might affect the body a bit but there is nothing to say that the mind affects pathophysiological processes um, right. and I know a lot of your research uh, would suggest completely the opposite of that so it's very interesting to have you on, on on this podcast talking about some of these things one of the other questions that comes up around the mind-body connection is the word connection some people would say yeah it's a connection the way the mind is connected to the body and other people say actually the word connection is kind of wrong because that suggests they are separate and therefore they have to be what's your take on that are the mind and body separate or unified or entangled yeah <laughs> uh, we speak about parallel processes so they are very well connected but in fact they're a little bit the same in a way because these are always parallel processes every physiological reactions produces an, our reactions in the brain and our brain is of course uh, uh, closely related to everything what we think what we feel what we do so these in fact are parallel system parallel processes in one system and we really only can understand the whole system if we understand these different processes and the interaction between these different processes but they are so closely connected, in fact, that it's a continuous interaction between all these processes that it makes it also at the same time very complex to study. Uh, and of course, our models in a way are quite limited because then, for example, we are interested in a type of causal relationship. Can a specific thought produce a specific feeling which has a consequence on our bodily uh, physiological reactions like cortisol? Um, and usually we study this in this way, and then sometimes we think there is, we see there is a causal relationship, and sometimes there's not. However, in fact, we also know this is a process with a lot of interaction in between it. For example, stress and cortisol. We know about the negative feedback loop in the body. So it is very complex to define as a single causal relationships because every effect has in itself again an effect on the next psychophysiological response. But this exactly means why it is so important to study all these different dimensions of specific phenomena like for example stress yeah? stress without the biological response is uh, really far too limited however stress without subjective response or the brain response is also far too limited so you need all these perspectives to understand complex phenomena like brain like stress like daily life at the same time, of course, you have to be cautious also what, what is the impact of a single dimension on another dimension. For example, what is the impact of a specific thought on your pathophysiology of a specific disease? And I agree with your uh, uh, colleague that there's sometimes limited evidence that, for example, a specific thought can have huge uh, effects on uh, health and disease. Because this is also really, in a way, I would say nonsense to assume that a single process, a small thing in our behavior or thoughts or a little bit of stress might have huge impact on pathophysiological processes. 
of course, you need very uh, strong effects in one dimension, for example, very chronic stress, huge stress, where you see then also an impact on, for example, the cause of a specific disease or morbidity and so um, uh, so the one influences the other, um, but it's never enough to, to study only a very single small um, uh, point of, of, of a specific dimension, like one thought, one specific thing, one small intervention, it would expect that this would have huge uh, effects on some other dimensions. And this is one of the complexities of, of research in this field where we yeah. are looking at such complex systems, as you say, people don't just have one thought at a time, because as yeah. they sit there having that thought about stress, they'll be yeah. thinking yeah. about yeah. what does the researcher think about my clothes today? Yeah. And there's a million thoughts that we could have at the same time. Um, and there's, uh, I've talked about this on one of the other podcasts, the, um, the interesting conceptualization of the difference between challenge and threat. So that's two people who experience the same stressful event. But of mm -hmm. course, stress is subjective. So if we feel that we have uh, the requisite skills to deal with that event, it's seen as a challenge or an opportunity. If we feel that we don't have what's required, we'll experience it as threat and we'll have a different physiological response. You know, there'll be a different yeah, amount yeah. of adrenaline, a different amount of blood pressure change. So really, really quite complex. And this is, I think, as I say, you know, one of the challenges of trying to identify what is going on in such a complex system. And of course, the other bit, the the, the upward information from the body, experiencing it going back into the nervous system and affecting it. Yeah, but it's even more complex when you, for example, try to define what is an adaptive and beneficial reaction. For example, stress is one of the interesting, most interesting examples. Um, for example, our immune system also learns in a way by infections. But you, we know this from every child. Eh? An immune system becomes stronger because uh, it has specific infections and diseases and so on. But the same research has been done, for example, with stress. When you, uh, for example, in animal studies, they showed that um, animals grew up too protected uh, they were not prepared later on and they had a lower survival rate. And that's quite interesting to think that people need a little bit stress to learn to cope with the stress and to feel it, see it as a challenge. And then uh, what you see is more strength in the whole system on the physiological level, but also on the psychological level, like resilience or other factors, but how we define it psychologically. And that's very interesting, but also see uh, makes uh, clear that it's very complex to distinguish what is beneficial and what is not beneficial. And the only thing what we know more and more is what we see that chronic stress seems to be something which is really not beneficial. In a way, if you have in a long term uh, very high levels of stress, then you see really an exhaustion of the whole system in a way. For example, that basic cortisol levels of people can change and uh, that the basic response is really different to a short-term stressor than it should be in a way. And that is a consequence of really long-term stress that has a huge impact. But in the short term, every stress factor can be a challenge and very even beneficial. That's an interesting thing, yeah. And, and Hans Selye, of course, noticed this 
in uh, I think the mid 1900s when he looked at eustress and distress and and general adaptation syndrome and all that kind of stuff and it's taken quite a long time to come to where we are now where people are starting to recognize okay well there are some significant physiological correlations of chronic stress so um what's your take on this have you always been interested in the mind-body connection or is this something that uh, you stumbled upon have you had personal experience what how did you get into it for me, it was really one of the most fascinating area. Already when I was uh, young and uh, thought about what should I do, I couldn't make a decision between psychology and medicine because both were so fascinating. I was always interested in the interaction and it was not possible to really study the interaction between both. So I had to make a decision and I made the decision for psychology, but always interested in the connection between both areas. And uh, my whole research is also in this area, particularly when I started with uh, uh, research in the area of placebo effects, I thought this is really the perfect model to study this connection between both. So I would say uh, in the last 10 years, there's specific focus on this relationship because we study it in the area of placebo effects where expectancies of people become so important and show that only that you expect, for example, that there will be a beneficial outcome can have a huge impact. I think in the mind-body area, there are two very strong models which show how large the clinical impact can be of this research area. And the first is stress and the second is placebo effects. And the placebo effect is in fact about your the power of your cognitions, thoughts, behavior, that only the expectation what you have can already induce a biological response and make uh, really can have a huge impact on treatment outcomes, which is of course a very important clinical outcome. At the same time, the placebo model is so interesting because there are several researchers, including myself, who are studying the mechanisms, which means that we understand now better and better why this can have an effect. Because it is in fact a learning effect, a placebo effect, it's a psychological phenomenon, and we know about a lot about learning and conditioning from the past. So all this knowledge we can apply to this specific area of the placebo effects. And there we see the connection and can study this effect on health and disease, which makes it very, very fascinating. Well, I think one of the areas that's so interesting, uh, which you and I both share, is, is an, an intrigue about the placebo effect. And particularly uh, because back often if as researchers you know placebo effect is annoying because it you know you have to account for it in your protocols and designs but instead seeing it as oh this is really interesting this is showing that there is something going on here physiologically is there any way that we can harness that how can we use that how can we stimulate that and particularly yeah. again an area where you share is uh, an interest in language, the importance of language in triggering placebo or sometimes nocebo effects just in the uh, throwaway comments that people use. And I know you've done mm. some fascinating research on that, which I'd like to move on to talk about. So um, before we do that, because uh, you did this really interesting closed open nocebo placebo study in 2019, actually, um, for you, what's your What's your favorite or most impressive bit of research in the field either that you've done or somebody else has done? What do you kind of think, oh, that's a really interesting, thought-provoking or yeah. 
concrete confirmatory study that people should really know about? What would it be for you? What would be the study? Yeah, for me, the most fascinating studies are the studies where we try to um, condition our bodily response, that our body can produce and learn a bodily response. And that is what we call pharmacological conditioning. So we use a medicine, we give first the medicine, uh, and the most well-known experiments in this area, for example, has been done in the past by the group of Manfred Svetlovsky, for example, they give cyclosporin, it's an anti-inflammatory medicine, and combine it, um, for example, with a milkshake with a specific drink, beverage, and later only give the milkshake with, and together with a placebo, and compare this to a group. Uh, only with the placebo. What they see is that the body can produce the same bodily reactions to the medicine and then later to the placebo, like specific cytokines reactions. Now, we did the same now in the area of cortisol and oxytocin and recently published, for example, this example of oxytocin, which is a hormone, oxytocin, as a hormone, it's very important in the area of social connections. Mother produces a lot of oxytocin when they're pregnant and have a baby. Um, and it was a very interesting question to see whether this might be also possible for the area of oxytocin. We knew that in animals it was, uh, had been shown in the past, but we were now the first to show that it's, there was also indeed a small effect on oxytocin. So we compared two groups. One uh, got oxytocin together with an odor. The next time they had only a placebo, and we compared them to a placebo group. And we saw indeed that one week after the exposure to the oxytocin together with the odor, that the odor only produced also an oxytocin reaction. And that was for me uh, personally really a proof in a way from, yeah, great, it seems to be also possible for this hormone. So we, we see this in animal research, we see this, for example, for specific immune responses. In some studies, there seems to be some evidence for insulin and cortisol, but oxytocin was, for example, now a new area. And of course, we have to study this in so many other fields, but the fact that it is possible uh, is of course fascinating that our body can learn to produce a specific physiological response only because this reaction has been learned. So without taking the medicine. And of course, people think then immediately how you can use this for clinical practice. That is of course a long way. I'm also a clinical psychologist and I'm very interested in clinical practice, but we have to be careful that we need a lot of, of these experiments to really know whether this might be really a beneficial response or to know that everybody responds in the same way. And that is really not the case at this moment. So at this moment, we know that it is possible. But it's, of course, interesting enough and so fascinating to demonstrate that our body is able to learn a physiological reaction and that we might use it also in the future for therapeutic applications. Yeah, that's really the most fascinating thing for me. Yeah, yeah really, really interesting stuff. It reminds me of some similar research by Megan Spear 
where she's done some stuff about people remembering good times, you know, uh, re-immersing themselves and savoring positive experiences and noticing that that affects, uh, buffers their cortisol response to stress. So in that case, we've got a instead of a laboratory learnt response they've had a nice time and there's been mm-hmm. some interesting hormonal changes which when they recall allows for a different physiological response to to triggers yeah. and so you can see how those both those kind of pieces of research have some similarities in it. it's like learnt responses triggering changes in physiology that you can imagine oh, with time we could we could replicate that enough that we can demonstrate there are ways to change physiology What's interesting, I think a lot of people already instinctively know that. They know that when they remember yeah. a good time, they feel good. And when they remember a shitty time, they don't feel so good. And that's not just in their brain. They feel it in their gut. They feel it in their body. They can tremble. They can, you know, phobia is a great example of that kind of learned response. Mm. When you're thinking about an imagined event that hasn't happened yet, like there may be a spider over there. Apologies to anybody listening who has a spider phobia, mm-hmm. but you think about it and you can feel, you know, triggered and, and feel adrenaline and changes in physiology. But that's really great that I think the more we add to, uh, you know, as you say, antihistamines, basophil activity, uh, cortisol, uh, insulin, dopamine in the Parkinson experiments they've been doing, uh, if yeah. we can go, well, look, all these things in some cases to some extent are affected by learnt responses imagery conditioning verbal suggestion uh, this starts to open up the kind of solid evidence base for 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 what we're looking at here is that the the mind-body connection is alive and well and then we can start to look at well how do we how do we switch it how do we how do we trigger it how do we harness Mm -hmm. it really really interesting um do you have much experience of people saying the mind-body connection is just a bunch of um, crazy hippie nonsense? Mm. Is, does that come to you much as a professor, or do you sidestep that with uh, your brilliant credibility? <laughs> um, uh, of course, this discussion. Uh, everybody knows this discussion, but in fact, it's true that when you do this type of research and you explain it to people, usually people are very open to these ideas because there's um, some evidence. And of course, you have to be very careful how important are the results and that you need several studies, that you need replication of results always, that you have to be careful to bring it in clinical practice. Uh, uh, because this, of course, would have uh, strong clinical consequences. And then I see that people really take it very seriously. Because I think our society is now really very interested in these type of developments. I will give one example. We know that our lifestyle is a main risk factor for a lot of chronic diseases. And um, uh, uh, about 40% of our people and the population will have a chronic disease if we do not do anything about this lifestyle components. And medical doctors realize more and more that the behavior of the patient uh, is becoming more and more important, that uh, uh, pharmaceutical industry can't solve our main problems in our society at this moment. So you see really societal change Uh, that people find it more and more interesting to think about the idea that people can do something about their own, for their own health. 
at the same time, this whole focus, for example, on lifestyle makes it also very concrete. And that's also very good. Yeah? So only knowing that, for example, you can stop you can stop smoking and it helps to prevent to becoming chronically ill makes it very concrete. So the idea then that the body can also produce some physiological reactions can learn. It's not so crazy anymore. Yeah? And uh, additionally, there's also a lot of evidence, for example, from very basic research showing that the immune system can learn. It's not only something psychologists study anymore, but also very basic physics researchers or immunologists or others are convinced that this relationship are so important. The same with the same brain research. It's a development of what they call predictive coding theory, but that Brain researchers now see that um, uh, the prediction of a response uh, produces the same results in the brain than the response itself, which makes it very clear that the expectancy, so that the prediction, what we the whole they're doing, is in itself, um, yeah, an objective response in a way, or has at least a very, very close relationship to a physiological response. And that to understand our brain, we really have to uh, study both uh, sides of the coin. And yeah, I think um, it's really fantastic to see that at least we get a lot of positive uh, reactions and that everybody is so open for all these discussions and so interested in this type of research. Coming back to the um, study I mentioned earlier, the open, closed, nocebo, placebo study that you did uh, which is, I think, published this year, uh, where you're... Do you want to talk about it? I'm, I'm assuming you know the one I'm talking about, where you compared uh, giving a verbal suggestion, positive or negative, whilst giving uh, stimulation to the uh, to an irritant to create an itch. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, of course. Um, this is an uh, interesting study because we are always interested, of course, is it, mm, is it possible that people know about the placebo effect? Because it's, of course, much more ethical. The people can be informed about the phenomenon. And is it still effective? So that is clinically a very, very important question. Because in our recommendations, for example, we made together with several international researchers in the area, our first claim was one that's so important to inform patients about nocebo and placebo effects during the treatment, and of course, then to train the clinicians. But then, of course, you have to know whether these effects are also still the same when people know about the placebo effect. And it has been shown in the past that people can be informed about placebo, take a placebo, and still, for example, in chronic pain patients, they um, had a lot of benefits for, for example, getting less pain, less disability. So we knew that it is possible. But in most studies, uh, these uh, both conditions of a closed or open label, what we call is, are not compared. So we compared this in the area of itch um, and uh, did have a look whether this might have a distinct influence on the experience of itch and in different experiments. And what we generally saw is that the effects on these closed and label conditions are not really different, which means that people 
can be informed about the fact that this is, for example, a verbal suggestion, and that only the fact that this is a verbal suggestion is the working element, and that makes not really a difference when people are not informed about the placebo effect, which is, of course, so important for consequence for clinical practice, that, yeah, for pa patient empowerment. People uh, can be informed about the nocebo effect, the placebo effect, and and this will have the same effects, or uh, at least similar effects, what we probably know, on the outcomes and that people are not informed is for every clinician a very important um, a result. Yeah, again, very fascinating stuff. Because for a long time, the idea was that uh, placebos only work by fooling and duping people into thinking that they were taking the magic pill or the real medicine. Yeah. And there yeah. was some, some groundbreaking studies, particularly in the States, uh, by Ted Kapchek about uh, IBS, the placebo, open-label yeah. trial placebo, where he gave people a pill and he said it contains absolutely nothing, but studies have suggested it might help your symptoms. And then famously at the end of the trial, people were running around pharmacies trying to get hold of these identical mm. looking pills saying it was a green one. I needed the, I needed the green one because that helped me. And they got major major symptom change in some cases. Um, with Even with the, the awareness of this, what's called the open label, where people know that what they're taking isn't real. Uh, and it is, again, interesting when people try and get their heads around it, whether they've been in a trial or hear about, hearing about one of those trials. Like, so... You know it doesn't contain anything, and yet it still works. How how does that work? And what it seems to be suggesting is that we are accepting that we do have some way of shifting our internal physiology, and that just creates some kind of mechanism for us to get hold of that, to hold that ability to use our neurology to change our physiology. What's your understanding of how open-label placebos work when somebody is told, look, it's just the verbal suggestion or it's just a, a colored solution it doesn't contain anything but it you know could well have an effect H what's your understanding of how that has how it works uh, for me it's absolutely not strange that this will work because when you understand that the placebo effect is an expectancy effect it's all about positive expectancies so if someone is, is convinced that something can have a positive effect because it is um uh, positive expectancies and um, it works of course better it is uh, very convincing positive expectancies is uh, uh, positive expectancies for a long time and that has previous positive experiences but then it can work and what they did in these open label uh, placebo trials and what we did also is first to give information about the placebo effect to say that and to inform people that a placebo effect in itself can be very effective. So people had a reason to believe that this could have been a very positive effect. And they really took time. I, I, I discussed this uh, same phenomenon with Ted Kaptikin and asked him, so uh, I would expect that you explain that a lot about the placebo effect and about the possible positive effect first. And he agreed, yes. They did first a long interview with patients and explained the mechanism of the placebo effect and how what it can have possible effects. And uh, um, additionally, I assume 
that the patients in these trials, for example, are particularly patients who are also open for these positive expectancies, who believe in it. And then, of course, it can have very positive effects. However, I assume that had not been studied, but it's a very interesting question, and I assume when people are very critical about this research, that the effects might be much lower, uh, because it's necessary that you have a positive expectancies. And uh, uh, it's very important also to emphasize that it's not only in positive expectancies due to, for example, one verbal suggestion. A positive expectancy means, for example, that you have a long-term positive experience. I always give the example of the white coat. Everybody believes in a white coat and sees it as an important phenomenon of a doctor who is an authority, who, who means something that uh, induces for me a positive expectancy from, oh yeah, I'm becoming better. I trust this guy because they have, um, uh, have knowledge and are experts in this area. But the white coat is in fact a definition in our society, but already a child knows that the white coat has a specific meaning. So this is what we call a conditioned effect which has a huge effect, a very long-term effect. So if you use all these um, uh, uh, all these things that are, in a way, induced, can induce very positive expectancies in someone, of course, then can, can in, produce a placebo effect, a very, very strong effect. And this is what the case is in the open-label placebo experiments. We give a very good outline that the placebo effect might work, so we induce the positive expectancies, and then, of course, we should expect that it works in the same way as the pill. That leads me on to a couple of questions. Um, one is, uh, people asked me uh, when I was doing this series uh, to find out a bit more about nocebo, so I'm going to ask you about that in a minute, but also um, the importance of communication therefore in in medical consults or any consultation really but particularly in medical consults are we doing enough to get these messages across to mm -hmm. the clinical practitioners um, and this is a, a complete kind of uh, obsession of mine I think the mm. words that we say as, as clinical practitioners are really 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 essential and there's certainly some research backing up the importance of specific words on activation of certain brain pathways. So first of all, uh, uh, what's your what's your thoughts on communication uh, and are we doing it well enough? Could we do it better? And also a bit about nocebos. Yeah, of course. Um, there's much room for improvement in clinical practice. And I think this is one of the reasons, of course, why we are so interested in this area, because we see there's so much room for improvement, also a lot of patients. Um, together with uh, main researchers in this field of placebo research, uh, we um, wrote a consensus paper about what might be the possible clinical implications of this research. And there were two main conclusions. And the first is we have to inform patients about this uh, phenomenon of placebo and nocebo research, and the doctors have to inform the patients. But we have also to train the doctors how to do this. This means we um, there is really much improvement needed in the clinical area, for example, in the area of consultation, how you give an instruction during a medical procedure, um, how, for example, take time 
to explain the possible effects of serum medication because only then it can have a possible placebo effect because otherwise people don't know what they're taking. Take time uh, for the for the uh, personal contact because people have to trust you. And the placebo effect is based on trust and an open and transparent relationship, for example, is the most important factor for trust and a, a good relationship. And this is, again, the, the basis of the placebo effect. And we know that at least in some medication, 50% of the medication is due to the placebo effect. So this medication will work much less if you do not make use of this potential of a good doctor-patient communication. And yeah, in addition, of course, it's much more ethical. It's, it's, it's important that people feel they were taken seriously in medical practice, but it will have huge, huge consequences on the therapeutic effects of everything that you prescribe. And usually, uh, I train a lot of doctors and will give a lot of lectures with all medical specialists. And what you see is that they are so interested and they want really to change these factors. But our healthcare system, we do not have enough time for people where the treatment itself is more important than the patient in a way, which is really crazy. But um, uh, this makes it that it's really difficult to organize it in another way. So our research is very important to show the possible effects and then also to, to demonstrate, for example, that it can be it's very cost effective to 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 give more attention to the patients. <laughs> and it is not uh, it is because people usually say from yeah, but it costs more time and we do not have time because time is money. But first uh, a good doctor-patient doctor relationship does not depend on the time. It, for example, depends on eye contact and yeah, that, uh, an open question or other characteristics, but not necessarily to time. And the second is, all these characteristics have a predictive value on the outcome of your therapy. So it is very cost-effective to invest in the maximum therapeutic effects. And the third thing is, you can be open about this. It is not necessary huh, uh, to have any form of deception because research shows that you can be open about the placebo effect and even being open, for example, about nocebo effects, eh, that it has can have a negative effect and the people are informed can reduce these effects. So it has a lot of therapeutic uh, benefits to implement this in clinical practice. I found uh because I'm often training doctors uh, and medical students and, and clinicians generally, that exactly that, that they are, there is an appetite for this now. People are interested. I think the research has helped that. And when they realize it's only small changes they need to make, which can have massive outcome changes yeah. uh, and, and they feel better as well. They're, they're, you know, they're, they feel better as clinicians yeah. as well yeah. as the patients. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really, really interesting how that's changed. How because uh, yeah. when I first started doing this work about thirty years ago, the idea that wor the words you use might have an effect on any kind of real physical outcome was crazy talk. And yeah, now, <laughs> and now uh, we're coming to a place where there, there is this growing evidence that it's this isn't just mm. wishful thinking. That there is a significant mm. uh, physiological demonstrable change. And obviously, the more data we collect, the more we can support that.
So for you, where where does this all lead? What's the future of healthcare? Are we going to see a shift in in how healthcare is delivered? I know I don't know what the what it's like in in Netherlands, but in England certainly we have the NHS, brilliant system, but it's uh, really having trouble because it's an endless uh, you know bucket that needs constantly filling. Money needs to be thrown into it. An aging mm. population, uh, people. What that twenty eighty percent rule, isn't it? That eighty percent of, of of patients will take sorry twenty percent of patients will take eighty percent of the resources or time, uh, and do we you know are we going to see a shift um uh, absolutely we see see a shift at this moment um and this is due uh, but a, a positive shift in a way that um everybody is aware of the fact that for example the uh, chronic diseases are such a huge problem and that um, the lifestyle for example of patients is really one of the most important risk factors for these chronic conditions. So everybody is aware that the old-fashioned uh, uh, solutions are not longer the only way to treat our patients, that we new, need new solutions, that these solutions come from other disciplines, uh, that we need to work together, that we have to organize our healthcare system also in another way. So I think in a way, these are huge problems we have to solve. But the positive thing about it is that it has positive consequences for the change of our healthcare system. Um, at the same time, there's also this development of patient empowerment. The patients know much more about their own health, that are frequently better informed than their medical doctors about their own condition, which is very good. Uh, and you get the phenomenon of shared decision making, for example which is great because then you really, uh, it's better for the doctor because it is impossible to have the right decision for specific patients because it, 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 it can be a better solution, but it might have also more risk, for example, specific treatment. So it's really also an important decision for the quality of life of the patients to make his own decision. Uh, so I'm very happy that the whole healthcare system is changing from that one person has a responsibility for all his patients and should know everything in a way to a system where we have all the responsibility for our own health and have to take care for others for the health. Also in a social way, yeah, that we are responsible also for a social environment and help each other to, for example, in a healthy lifestyle. As an example, we have now a project where we stimulate people to maintain a healthy lifestyle to prevent cardiovascular disease and also in cardiovascular rehabilitation. And we do this by making a healthy lifestyle attractive. Because from a psychological point of view, we know that um, uh, people don't want to change, only want to change when something is nice or attractive. So we're giving them a little bit reward for everything what they're doing for the healthy lifestyle to support them. Because we all know that changing your lifestyle is not very rewarding always and can be very difficult. So that is a way, for example, the whole system can be reorganized to make it a little bit easier to support each other in the good direction. 
but it makes it also clear that the doctor is only one one point in the whole system in the whole circle of all people who are creating and are responsible for our health and all the consequences and also our environment of course so i think it's a very democratic healthcare system we are going to have in the future and i think it's very yeah these are very positive consequences of course of very huge problems we face at this moment and we have to solve that reminds me of two um two interesting things um, the, the, a lot of the work i do recasts um the therapeutic consultation instead of practitioner patient as a, tr a training session where we will teach you some things that you need to put into practice whether it's you know using this mind-body connection or changing the way you think about stuff or the exercise you do and i think that's quite interesting and that whole idea of patient mm -hmm. empowerment activation yeah. that we see it and, and that of course is the original meaning of the word doctor which is teacher that's what's sort of originally oh, leader yeah, yeah. teacher yeah. Uh, to, to help guide people because there's no way in the five minute, 10 minute, 25 minute consultation against the 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that we can have as much impact as they could possibly have. If only we could use that as a training experience as well as a therapeutic one. And the other thing that somebody was telling me about was a positive psychology intervention where we know that um, doing things for other people that like you kind of talked about society is good for us uh, in lots mm. of ways. And uh, the intervention is, I can't remember what it's called now. I have to look it up. But you, uh, you, you go to someone's house and you help them out. But you don't just go to someone's house. You run to somebody's house. So you do some exercise, and yeah. help out like an old person fix their you know light bulbs. Oh, funny! <laughs> and then you run home That's again. Amazing. So you're kind of combining both those kind of aspects. Yeah, yeah. I'll look, yeah. have to look yeah. it up yeah. and send that to you. Um, yeah. Do you have, this may not be your, your thing, because uh, you're mainly a researcher, although you are a, 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 um, a health psychologist, do you have any tips or exercises uh, or suggestions for people for how they can improve their health or utilize some of the research you've done in simple ways to you know, make a difference? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm also a clinical psychologist. So also, I treat patients here in the area of medical psychology. So we have our own uh, clinic here, also our patient clinic. Which is which is interesting in itself because so often that's not the case, isn't it? You get researchers yeah. who do research, and you get yeah. clinicians yeah. and mm. yeah. <laughs> carry on. No, that's really exceptional indeed. And we have a treatment unit here in our university, and this is really also a choice we really make that we think it is very important that we make the difference also as a researcher and that we combine both. Mm -hmm. It's also um, where we are convinced of that this is really has an added value also for our students and for the society. Um, yes, of course. And so I'm, for example, last week I trained a lot of uh, psychiatrists and psychologists how to can they can use this type of, for example, effects of the placebo research in clinical practice. Um, in terms of uh, placebo, for example, it is very important. Uh, the phenomenon of nocebo is perhaps even more important than placebo, that people have constantly, for example, a negative expectancies and when the people have, and for example, they're very scared of side effects, we know this can in itself produce side effects. 
So what I always say is, um, if you are not very scared and if you do not worry about these effects, then it's perhaps not so important. But if you see when you, for example, you prepare yourself for surgery and when you're really afraid of these side effects, then there's really a high risk for patients that they experience indeed more side effects due to the anxiety and the stress they have and other phenomena. So then it's really important to, for example, ask uh, for extra consultation with your medical doctor, um, explain then, for example, the whole procedure, but also explain the phenomenon of the nocebo effect that it can in itself, the anxiety can itself produce these physical symptoms. And that's not always necessarily also a sign of your disease, but it can also be a consequence of the nocebo effect. And previous research have, for example, shown in New Zealand that explaining to people the phenomenon of the nocebo effect can in itself produce a reduction of the symptoms and can help people in this area. So um, uh, taking the nocebo effect very seriously is very important. For clinicians, it's at the same time very important that they think about what they explain about the nocebo effect because only the word pain or the induction that this will be very painful produces in fact more pain than you describe it in another way. So think about the way how you give instructions, how you explain a medical procedure and what is necessary to explain for example about side effects. Of course it's, it, it, it's necessary to say something about these effects. But if, for example, you make a choice first to explain what a nocebo effect is, and it's not necessary to, to call it a nocebo effect, you can also speak about anxiety or expectancies or hey, what's your own choice. But then, of course, you can ask your patients on what is your own choice if you would know that only talking about a half hour of these side effects will produce more side effects. What would be your own choice to be fully informed in half hour? Or for example, to say there might be possible side effects. You can look here at the website at these possible side effects, but when you know that talking about a lot produces possibly also, perhaps we can make also the choice that we do not take the time now to talk in a half hour about these risks and side effects. And usually I would expect that most people will say, no, it's fine, I feel really well, I'm very well informed and I know it's possible. So we really have to think in a new way how to inform people about uh, all consequences of our treatment. So for the nocebo effect, it is very, very important to think about this clinical consequence. For the placebo effect, of course, there are also very concrete recommendations we can make. And perhaps the most important thing is for patients, if you do not expect positive thing of your treatment, perhaps it's better not to start with it because placebo effect usually it's necessary to have a very good therapeutic effect. So if you are not convinced that this will have a positive effect, then you really do not have a positive expectancies. So then I would always advise, discuss it again with your medical doctor, uh, ask for additional consultations for outline why this medication is prescribed. And at the same time, I would advise clinicians 
please outline in a good way, be sure that the patients understand why you prescribe this specific treatment um, and then that you both have the same expectancies and at least in the long term, you usually expect a positive effect. So explain also this positive effects, positive possible long-term effects. Perhaps in the short term, it might be not effective, but in the long term, you usually have a positive expectancies. Um, so explain it uh, to your patients. Take the time for this outline about the effects, and then the uh, chance that you will have much more positive effect is much higher. So both on the side of the patients. So if you feel doubts, if you're not convinced about training, ask for it. And yeah, in the worst case scenario, perhaps you you can wait and for and and make a decision half year later. And for the area of medical doctors, health professionals, really take your time to explain the the why you're prescribing this uh, treatment and explain the possible benefits in an open and transparent way because, of course, it's based on trust. And trust means openness and transparency in the relationship. Yeah. Fabulous. I and mean, there's some really interesting points there. Um, it, a lot of the work I do... Um, people go well if it's so if what you do is so good when it work for everybody you know and it's like if people and what you just said there just confirms that, that if people come with it this isn't going to work for me this is going to make me worse or this is going to be this is nonsense then the chances of it working as you exactly say it's like you probably know it's probably not right for you right now why make it that difficult uh, and mm. not just in any any therapeutic endeavor but also in medicines you know when you give someone a pharmaceutical product the effect will be attenuated by whether they really think it's going to make a difference if they like the doctor mm. if they like the color there's so many things that we know make a difference yeah perhaps interesting also to add that usually we think of course when we think in terms of placebo effect that the expectancy of the patients is only important but uh, in addition, it's also, of course, the expectancies of the uh, health professionals. It's also important because usually uh, people uh, feel that um, uh, there might be indeed a difference in the effect. And this uh, uh, feel when the health professional is not really convinced of a treatment that is prescribed. Mm. So also, as a health professional, please prescribe uh, 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 treatments where you are convinced that this might indeed have a positive effect because that also uh, has an extra effect on the placebo effect for the patient. And the other thing I wanted to say was about the use of language, which again is something I'm very particular yeah. about. Yeah. Uh, as soon as you mention the word anxiety, do you have any anxiety about side effects? You're triggering all sorts of responses you probably don't want to be and, and thinking yeah. more yeah. carefully about instead of using the word pain, using the word comfort. You know, this, uh, let's see what your degree of comfort is rather than let's see what your degree yeah. of pain yeah. is. And I think the research yeah. around that is really interesting. And there's really, this is when I talk to doctors, training them and stuff, really getting to, to stop using habitual words that we were all trained in as clinicians. Uh, you know, yeah. does that hurt more? You know, constant conversations mm. that, that trigger the wrong neurology and just stopping for a minute and thinking, how could I say this in a way which is more likely to encourage health, but still get the same, you know, still get the same data? You know, I think it's such mm. an interesting yeah. area of study. 
Um, yeah. So uh, I heard a knock on the door, which suggests you need to go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much for your your time today. If you were to okay. summarize yeah. everything, one bite-sized bit of information you'd like to leave people with, what would you say? What would be the message you would like people to take away? Um, I think one of the most interesting phenomenon, of course, is to understand much better the what you call body-mind uh, connection. And the fascinating thing is that we have now so much research in the area that we are able to understand it much better. That's fantastic. But the next step, and that's really even more important, that we implement this research now also in clinical practice and that we realize what we know and that everybody is very well informed about this phenomenon and that we really take this knowledge into clinical practice to the patients and to the health professionals. And then this, of course, will have the effect what we would like to be. Yeah. Thank you very much, Andrea. Thanks for your time and uh, and your knowledge and wisdom on the subject. It's been great to speak to you. I'll let you go to your, your next meeting. Uh, nice to speak to <laughs> okay. you. I'll speak soon. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. The Mind Body Connection Podcast. The Body and the Mind. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do subscribe to us on iTunes, like it, review it, and share it. The more people know about this, the better. And don't forget to join our podcast mailing list by going to philparker.org forward slash yes, and you'll get extra stuff, bonus material, and program notes. See you there.